The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC, and here is your top five at five. Archegos, ripple impact. Regulators now considering a new crackdown and sweeping new rules. The wake of the trading scandal felt around the world. Speaking of Archegos, the investment bank at the center of the scandal, out with earnings this morning, squandering what would have been record-breaking quarter. But how did Credit Suisse get it so wrong? No SPAC slowdown here. A new $2.2 billion deal on deck with a focus on smart home technology. Taking flight, an upbeat look on the summer courtesy of the nation's airline industry. We'll tell you how many people are booking flights now. And is it a bubble, a bangle, or a bright, shiny thing? The Hot Hamptons housing market and the rental that just leased with a multi-million dollar price tag. It is Thursday, April 22nd, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. Happy Thursday. I'm Brian Sullivan. Let's get right to it. Get a check on the markets and your money. Now, the global markets are setting up their day. We are seeing stock futures trade down just a bit. Again, kind of a trend we've seen all week, right? I mean, not big moves either way, maybe up a little, down a little. We are seeing the Dow futures off 27 points, NASDAQ down a whole six. All this after the major averages snapped two-day losing streaks, if you want to call that a streak. The Russell 2000 bouncing back in a big way, coming off its best day in nearly two months, up nearly 2.5%. And watch the Dow transports, all the transportation stocks seen as kind of a leading economic indicator. That index back at record highs. On pace now, get this, for its longest weekly winning streak ever. That's right, the Dow transports up 12 winning weeks in a row. If you believe in the Dow theory and you believe the transports are kind of that leading index, that's a pretty doggone good sign for the economy. Could have been an RBI, I guess. we got a better one coming up for you. But transportation stocks, they have been hot. All right, let's bring in stocks and talk more about the macro market and expand this conversation and bring in Vesco global market strategist Brian Levitt. Brian, good to see you again. Uh, The Dow transports, 12-week win streak in a row. Do you think that is some kind of great fortune or crystal fortune teller crystal ball on how things are going to look down the road? Yeah, it's a good leading indicator. And it is very consistent with what you're seeing from the economic data and very consistent with what you're hearing from policymakers, which is ongoing support. And so when you're trying to assess markets, if you ask yourself the question, what's the direction of the economy? In many ways, it, 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 it's accelerating, right? It's, it's hard to find data that doesn't suggest it's accelerating. What's the direction of policy? Very accommodative. That's a good backdrop for risk assets, and the Dow Transport's leading that. It, what, what's the biggest risk 
Brian, that you see out there right now? We got sort of Russia amassing on the border of Ukraine. We got China flying fighter jets over Taiwan. We got Iran and the nuclear talks there. We've got you know COVID that is still surging in certain parts of the world in a couple of states. But what do you see as the biggest risk for our viewers and our investing audience right now? So you've got a base case that's very optimistic and you've got two tail risks. And one of the tails is that the pandemic comes back and these new variants surge and and leads to another slowdown in the economy. I, I would put that at a, a, you know, hopefully a lower probability than we would have um, prior to the vaccines. And then the other risk is, of course, that this thing overheats and you get inflationary pressure and the market starts to assess that the Federal Reserve is going to have to raise interest rates sooner than you may have otherwise expected. And that would mean a flatter yield curve, a stronger dollar and a bit of a risk off period. Uh, I don't assign a very high probability to either um, disrupting markets over the remainder of this year. But those are the two big risks. And we saw what happened with markets um, a handful of weeks ago when concerns of inflation picked up and and the disruption yeah. that you saw in some of the speculative growth names. So we could see that again, again, not base case, but that's the risk that lurks out there. Well, I'm reading a lot of stuff, probably the same stuff, Brian, that you're reading every day, the economic notes, whatever, from Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs or JPM, whoever it may be. And there does seem to be a lot of chatter. They're not calling it necessarily, but a lot of talk that the Fed may have to raise rates or will raise rates sooner than we think. They won't be ultra low forever because inflation is heating up. Unemployment is just back to the level of 2014 that they may have to change their stance and right quick. So a couple of things. I mean, the first, the Fed continues to believe that it's transitory and so inflation. And so we know there's a lot of pent up demand that's about to hit the economy. The the question is when it, whether anything structural has changed as you move into 2022 and, and 2023. Currently, the Fed still believes nothing structural has changed. I tend to agree with them. I don't believe you're about to see an inflationary spiral as we move out beyond this year. Obviously, you'll have a pickup in inflation this year because of the pent-up demand and because of the basis effect. So that's one. The second is investors need to assess what it would mean for the Fed to raise interest rates. I mean, there's always sort of this freak out moment when the Fed raises interest rates for the first time. And there's no doubt as the Fed tightens policy that you'll see the usual trappings for the market. You'll see a stronger dollar. You'll see volatility emerge. But the question would be, does that represent a buying opportunity or is that the end of this cycle? Are we just going to hasten this cycle significantly? I would argue if the Fed had to raise interest rates earlier on, yeah. it would resemble the taper in 2013 or a rate hike in 2015 and not the end of the cycle. No, it doesn't. In fact, history shows, Brian, that in most rate hike situations, stocks can and will go up because it also generally signifies a much strengthening economy. This whole, if rates go up, we're doomed. Maybe for certain growth sectors, right? Maybe for certain sectors that rely on ultra low rates and the rotation trade, whatever. But it doesn't mean the overall markets cannot go up or will not go up. No, it's not the first rate hike that matters. It's the last one. And cycles end typically with some type of policy mistake with the Federal Reserve uh, 
pushes rates too high, the yield curve inverts, credit spreads blow out. I mean, I would argue, Brian, we're a long ways away from that. So, you know, investors look at what's transpired. They look at what's gone on with the market. Many ways they start to assess, is it too good to be true? Does something ominous need to be lurking? We're still early days of this cycle. Are there risks? There's certainly risks. But I would expect this cycle to play yeah. out over multiple years, not to be concluding anytime soon. All right. Some words of optimism. Longer term there from Brian Levitt of Invesco. Brian, we appreciate it. Good to have a little optimism, especially at like, you know, 5, 10 or whatever time it is in the morning. <laughs> Brian, thank you. Good to see you. Thanks. Take care. All right. Good to see you as well. All right. Now let's get to some of this morning's other top headlines, including more on the Archegos saga, which may become, if it isn't already, the most expensive bad trade the world has ever seen. Bertha Coombs, how's that for a lead in? Yeah, that's certainly true for Credit Suisse, but it could have other ripple effects, too. Good morning, Brian. The SEC is reportedly considering tougher disclosure requirements for investment firms in general. According to Bloomberg, the regulator is exploring how to increase transparency for the types of derivative bets that led to the Archegos capital management stock scandal, as well as ways to shed light on short bets like those linked to the run-up in GameStop shares earlier this year. Meantime, a new SPAC deal in the works, SmartRent.com, a firm that sells smart home tech to apartment building owners and developers, is reportedly looking to go public through a SPAC merger that could value the company at $2.2 billion. SmartRent's tech is used in about 185,000 locations throughout the U.S. and Canada. And according to the Wall Street Journal, the deal with Fifth Wall Acquisition Corp could close as soon as today. And Disney reaching a deal with Sony Pictures to bring new Spider-Man movies and other films to Disney streaming services and TV networks in the U.S. after they play on Netflix starting in 2023. And not just Spider-Man, Disney says it's also secured rights to offer older Sony films, including Jumanji and Hotel Transylvania, much sooner. The company said it will add a significant number of Sony titles to Hulu starting in June. You know, I got to say, I, I like watching movies at home better than at the movies these days. I, I'm, I'm a total convert. Well, it's a lot easier. It's probably a lot cheaper. I like all these Marvel movies, Bertha, because I'll break some news to you. I was a giant comic book nerd when I was a kid, apparently like Bob Pisani. I've got a couple thousand really? Marvel comic books in the attic. I'm not kidding. And they're all in these little bags with these backings. And, I, and every time a movie comes out, wow. I'm kind of hoping these, these comic book prices go up like a non-fungible token so I can pay for my kid's college with like <laughs> Spider-Man number you know, 37 or something. There's no way you, you I, thought that I was like a I think they're a little more like real than NFTs. Kid. They're more real oh, yeah. than NFTs. I can actually I mean, you can read get them, them valued on Antiques Roadshow. You can't do that with an NFT. Yeah, and I've got some weird ones, like from like uh, the '80s. You had these weird titles, like "Adolescent Radioactive Black Belt Hamsters," which was a knockoff on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Anywho, nobody cares. But we'll do a comic book <laughs> segment again. I hope coming up. Bertha, we'll see you soon. Learn something every day. Now, it's something that nobody wanted to know. Nobody had, it, nobody cared at all. All right. When we come back, a big data shocker that has that stock, that chart, surging more than 30% in the pre-market. Who is that masked stock? We'll bring it up. And later on, Bubble, Bangle, 
or just another bright, shiny thing? The red-hot housing market in the Hamptons just got even hotter, if that's possible. We'll tell you what one rental, a rental for three months, just traded at. It's going to blow your mind and wake you up. We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. All right, welcome back. Time now for a check on some of this morning's big money movers. Three stock stories you got to hear. Let's go. Stock number one, Whoop Whirlpool. He said, Whirlpool, he said, wheat thin, up one and a half percent. Earnings beat estimates. They came in, get this, $6.81 a share. That's up from $2.45 a year ago. Everybody's buying dishwashers. Sales also up more than 20% last year. Stock number two is Netgear. It's going the other way, lower on the back of disappointing sales guidance for its second quarter. Now expect second quarter sales to range between $305 million and $320 million. The expected guidance, closer to $325 million. It's down 3.5%. And stock number three, Teradata, surging after releasing preliminary first quarter results after the close yesterday. Yeah, that's your mystery chart. Company expects earnings to come in between 67 and 69 cents, up from guidance of about 40 cents. Yeah, coming in maybe at 69 on guidance of 40 that's why that stock is up nearly 30% right now and up 105% in just three months. If you own Teradata, I don't know, three months and one day ago, take the family out for dinner tonight. Congratulations. Wow. All right, still on deck. Bobbles, bangles, bubbles, and bright, shiny things. We're going to talk rising asset prices for everything from Dogecoin to Ham- Hampton Houses. You're not going to believe what some houses in the Hamptons are going for this summer, but we'll tell you anyway right after this. Today's big number, 109. That's how many new SPAC deals were completed in March, a new record, according to data from SPAC research. But issuance has plummeted so far this month dropping to just 10 after the SEC issued accounting guidance that would classify SPAC warrants as liabilities. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
All right, welcome back. Well, it seems that everybody has got some bubbles on their minds these days, or at least it seems that way as asset prices rise for everything from lumber and corn to homes to Dogecoin. And it's hard to know at any given moment of time if you're in a bubble because maybe they don't seem like a bubble at the time or they seem to kind of be everywhere. And that's why we thought we'd actually play a little game to start your morning with our friend Caleb Silver, editor-in-chief of Investopedia. We're going to call it Bubbles, Bangles, you know, jewelry, not the band, or Bright Shiny Things with a hat tip to Frank Sinatra and Tom Jobin. Caleb, welcome. Good to see you again. Uh, We're going to kind of do this as like a game, but also news. So here we go. You ready? All right. I'm ready. Bring it. Our first item. What else? All right. Let's bring it. Bitcoin. It's up 650% over the past year, but this is not a 2017. Fidelity, Goldman Sachs, BNY Mellon, PayPal, Visa, you name it, more, Guggenheim, all the big financial institutions are on it this year. So Bitcoin, a bubble, a bangle, or just another brat shiny thing? Brian, I'm going to go all the above there because it kind of is a bubble. You have a infinite number of investors almost chasing a finite supply of Bitcoin. We know there's only going to be so many mined over time. So you got that going for it. It's a bangle in that you could hodl it forever. Get it? Hodl it forever. But it's also a bright, shiny thing because now we have athletes wanting to be paid in it. We have musicians who want to be paid in it. As soon as you see that, the the big stars wanting to be paid in Bitcoin instead of cold, hard cash, you know it's a bright, shiny thing. So I'm going to go all the above with Bitcoin, but we're in the middle of it. And where's Bazooka Joe when you need him? Kind of cheating. I'm not sure that was the point of the game. You're supposed to make a a hot take or a call. You just, I mean, you you just punt it. Uh, it's bright, it's like shiny fourth thing. and one, and you're on the 40, and you punt it. I... Fair enough. <laughs> it's a bright, shiny thing. Let's do some real estate. Let's do some real estate, Brian. There is an apartment in okay. one Hyde Park in London with $248 million, the most expensive apartment in London. You could pay for it in the equivalent in Bitcoin, Brian. It's beautiful. It's got high ceilings just for you, great views of Hyde Park. Go out there and throw your Frisbee. Come back into the apartment. There it is. Bubble? bangle or a bright shiny thing at one Hyde Park for you. Are you turning the game back on me? I see what you're doing there. Um, I'm going to go with a bubble. I'm going to go with a bubble with a caveat because first off, $248 million for for a condo. That's amazing. Uh, I'm sure it's quite lovely. Uh, We've had New York City condos go for $200 million to Ken Griffin of Citadel. Caleb, real estate in the most, you know, special spots, as we know, tends to be a fixed asset. Interest rates are low. People are going for real assets. I will say it's a bubble only because the number of people who would be able to purchase it from whoever just bought it, should they need to sell it, is probably about 10. Because I guarantee you, whatever the cost is of that place, just the maintenance or the monthly taxes or whatever it is, is enough to keep most people out of the market. I'm not saying the bubble's going to pop tomorrow, $248 $248 million for some concrete with a view? No thanks. Sold to you, Caleb. Butler included. Multiple butlers, I hope, at that price. Good grief. Give me Mr. Belvedere and Mr. Belvedere and Mr. Belvedere's cousin. Caleb, speaking of housing, a home in the Hamptons just... Uh, your, your net where you hang out every summer. Get this. The Hamptons, a house just rented for two million dollars. I think that's Memorial Day to Labor Day. According to brokers in the area, 
They said two million. But yeah, there's extremely low inventory. According to a report from Douglas Elliman and Miller Samuel, the number of homes listed for sale in the Hamptons down 41 percent in the first quarter. Fastest decline on record. The median sales price jumped 31 percent to 1.3 million. I don't know what you're getting in the Hamptons for 1.3 million. A, a plot of grass with a with a doghouse on it. Either way, is now 20 percent higher than the median sales price in Manhattan. Hampton sales and rentals. Your second home, bubble bangle or bright shiny thing. Oh, that's just right next door to my house. So I know it's a bubble because you have only a few people who could possibly rent that. But they're flying folks out on shoppers almost every day from New York City, Boston and Philadelphia who want to look at these properties. You have about two seconds to make a decision because they're being snapped up like that. We got a bubble in the Hamptons. We have a bubble almost every year there, but it's an extreme one this summer because everyone wants to get out of town and hang out by the beach, maybe get some clams, maybe go to Chalky's Talk House for some reggae. I think it's a bubble in the Hamptons, but it's always been one. Yeah, see, you, you, you're dropping all the places. Caleb, I think, I think you're exactly right. I think it's more also this. This is, you know, listen, COVID is going is to go away. The vaccinations, nature says that. This is going to be the last summer where a lot of people can go where they want probably for two to three months, right? As opposed to taking a week's vacation here and a week's vacation there. This summer, because most Wall Street firms aren't requiring five days a week until after Labor Day, you, you're, you're, you, this is it. People say, you know what? It's the one time in the next 30 years we're going to be able to do it. Let's do it. All right. Last one for you, Brian. It's a rose by any other name. It's a non-fungible token of a rose called Forever Rose, dropped on Valentine's Day in 2018, sold for a million dollars. It's just the NFT of a photograph. The same photograph sold for of a dirty potato sold for a million dollars. Brian, bubble, bangle, or a bright, shiny thing? I mean, yeah, I... I don't even know what to call it. I, I've got other words in my head, but it's a family show and it's 530 in the morning. You know, I was trying to explain this to my dad the other day. It's, it's not a photograph. It's like a digital imprint sort of of a photograph. How do you display it? I, I guess you take a picture of the picture and hang that as well. Uh, I think it's novel. I think the first ones are probably going to not be a bubble because they're going to have value over time because they were novel. They were the first ones. I think everybody's going to try to monetize this. I mean, this show, like this segment of this show could theoretically become an NFT. There's an unlimited supply. There will not be unlimited demand. It is bubblicious. Call your buddy as you drop them Bazooka Joe. You said it, Brian. Bazooka Joe, where are you when you need your happy Earth Day? Yes, right. Happy Earth Day, Caleb Silver. Thank you very much. Good stuff there. Bubbles, bangles, and bright, shiny things. I like it. Caleb, thank you. We'll see you again soon. Thanks for playing. You like that segment, folks? If you do, let us know. We'll bring it back. If you didn't like it at all, we'll never bring it back again, and that'll be the end of it, and we'll sell that as an NFT. All right, up next, if you're thinking of flying this summer, and who's not, you might want to book that ticket now what airlines are saying about travel demand coming up. And also, if you're hitting the road or you just need something cool to listen to, subscribe to our podcast. I know, another cheap promo. But we set you up for the day like no other show. With all due respect to every other show. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or others. Dow Futures down 21, Bitcoin down 2,000. We're back after this. Thank you.
Good morning. Do you need some good news? Well, who doesn't? We'll talk to an airline CEO right now. That's right, airline CEO. We're going to give you the view from 35,000 feet. And if you want an upbeat view on the American consumer, just talk more about it. We'll talk more about the airlines coming up. Follow the money. New numbers on big tech's lobbying efforts. Eamon Javers will join us with some very interesting data on how much money is sloshing around D.C. from big tech. And your morning RBI, only today it's not random but interesting. It's random but expensive. The story of tax cheats and why there seem to be so many of them. How we can pay for a lot of cool projects if we just did one thing. It is Thursday, April 22nd, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning or welcome or welcome back. Wherever in the world you may be watching, I'm Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us here on Worldwide Exchange. Here's how your money looks this morning. Futures, they are mixed to maybe slightly lower. Or again, every day this week has kind of been the same. Not a big trend early on. Now we're seeing Dow futures off 15, NASDAQ futures off 10. But remember, we kind of had a similar setup yesterday and the markets did well. In fact, the Russell 2000, which had been in kind of a steep slide in about a month for the small caps, had one of its best days in months, rising 2.5%. So futures, not saying they don't matter, but they haven't been telling the whole story, at least this week. So take that with a pinch of sea salt. In fact, fair value is actually up about five points. All right, now it is time for a bonus batch of big money stock stories happening now. Why not? Stock number one in this round, Sleep Number, the mattress company raising guidance But shares are down 6% because of a supply snag in the quarter. Remember all those containers? We talked about that in South Carolina, all the ships. If you you can't sell a mattress, if you can't get a mattress, and it appears that's hurting sleep number. Stock number two, Credit Suisse, looking to raise more than $2 billion in capital after losses from that now ill-fated Archegos trade piling up. The bank expects a hit of about $655 million this quarter, And if you're wondering just how much that's going to sting, Credit Suisse says if the $4.8 billion charge because of Archegos, as well as costs related to the collapse of UK finance firm Greensill, were stripped out, it would have reported its best quarterly profit in a decade. Well, if I didn't get that C, my GPA would have been a lot better. That side, the Wall Street Journal reports Credit Suisse has more than $20 billion and exposure to Archegos Investments. Think about that. Thousands of Credit Suisse employees all over the world working their butts off all year long, probably going to wipe out their bonus hopes because of profit at the firm getting whacked, really, by one bad trade. Yikes. And stock number three, UiPath. Shares of the new IPO up again right now. It had a solid debut yesterday. UiPath makes automation software, rising 23% from its IPO price of 56 bucks a share. Right now, trading at 71.80. The company was started by a former Microsoft executive, and it's now got a market cap of $36 billion. All right, more airlines set to report their quarterly results today. We're not saying earnings because there may not be any earnings in them. American Airlines, Southwest, and Alaska Airlines all expected to post losses. But we know that. It's the outlook that we all care about. 
So let's talk more about that and bring in Stephen Trent, airlines analyst at Citigroup. Stephen, good morning. Uh, you know, we're hearing from the likes of Gary Kelly at Southwest Airlines, and they're talking about domestic travel booming. For years, it was by the airlines that had the profitable routes to, you know, France and Tokyo. Do we now want to buy the airlines that have got the routes from, you know, Dallas to Boise? No, great question. And good morning to you as well. Um, I think what we're seeing in this uh, uh, evolution of the pandemic, certainly a bigger focus on domestic travel and a focus on leisure and visiting friends and relatives travel. So we think in the we're moving forward in the post-pandemic environment that those carriers with uh, the best seat mile cost profiles are going to be the winners, relatively speaking. Um, I think in terms mm-hmm. of what this means uh, for the airlines and what it means for the bottom line, uh, I think two questions I have, as we, especially as we look into the summer booking season, uh, what kind of capacity deployment do we get? Um, and what do we see in business travel on a pre-pandemic basis? Remember, business travels 15% of volumes, more or less, uh, and at least 50% of passenger revenue. Um, so that's still a big missing piece. Uh, and where does everybody else put capacity uh, if some of that business hasn't come back yet? So we're constructive on the rebound, but a little more cautious than we were a few months ago. Yeah, and your ratings, and I'll give you a lot of credit for this, Stephen, you actually have a sell rating. I mean, you don't see that much on American Airlines, neutral on Southwest, but a buy on United. Is this going to be a pricing power story? You know, quickly, a couple of days ago, a couple of weeks ago, I was looking to buy a flight for Christmas to a nice warm climate. I looked last week. I didn't book anything stupidly. I looked last week. This is real. The price had more than doubled, more than mm-hmm. doubled in a week. Now, maybe United's just fishing. I don't know. But if somebody hits that bid, it's going to be a profitable flight for them. Is this going to be limited capacity means people that are willing to pay up will. And you don't make it up in volume. You literally make it up in price. Certainly you have uh, puts and takes there, no? So I think in terms of uh, people looking for travel, looking especially at the shorter end of the booking curve, um, it's not particularly easy uh, to massively increase demand, um, you know, in one instance. Um, so in that scenario, uh, absolutely, that can be an opportunity uh, where the airlines can uh, test pricing, especially as we look uh, mm-hmm. close in on that booking curve. I think as we get to the summer season, certainly depending on routes um, and certainly depending on uh, what carrier we're talking about, um, I think that's a a scenario that's a little less clear. The volumes we think are going to be there. So there's post-pandemic, well, not quite post-pandemic, but the bounce in demand as the pandemic is at least subsiding. Um, That volume recovery that everybody's been anticipating, it's already here. We think that continues into the summer. I think what's more relevant. uh, Is is, Stephen, sorry to jump in on you, my friend, just uh, time-wise. Is United your best bet for clients? We actually prefer Delta. Um, so we think Delta in terms of its uh, muscular position around Hartsfield, um, what it's done and what it probably can still do and in terms of its credit card program, uh, give that carrier some potential tailwind. I mean, we're still constructive on United, um, and I would say United's 
relatively weak performance uh, gives that name some valuation protection versus others in the group. Stephen Trent of Citigroup. Stephen, a pleasure to have you on. Prefers Delta to United, but has a sell on American Airlines, a rare sell. Stephen, we appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. And by the way, don't miss the trifecta of airline CEOs on CNBC today. You got Doug Parker of the aforementioned sell rating, American Airlines, 730. Gary Kelly on at 930 this morning of Southwest. And Ben Minucci of Alaska Airlines on closing bell at three. It's like just an airport of CEOs today. All right, now to Washington, where we're getting some new numbers and some big money proof that lobbying and big tech are juicing up, and they may be getting ready for a fight in Washington, D.C. Eamon Javers joining us now with more. Eamon, how much money is big tech spending on big-time lobbying on K Street in Washington, D.C.? Well, it's millions and millions of dollars, Brian, for each of these big companies, and they're all boosting over the previous quarter. You do tend to get a big uptick in the first quarter, but you get a sense looking at these numbers uh, that big tech is really bracing for something here in Washington with all this antitrust talk out there with all this talk of regulation. There's a lot out there. Take a look at the numbers. This is the first quarter of 2021. The numbers just in yesterday. Amazon spent $4.8 million. They're the big spender. But just behind them is Facebook at 4.79. Alphabet, the parent of Google, 2.6. Microsoft, uh, 2.6 also. Call it uh, 2.7 for Alphabet, 2.6 for Microsoft. And Apple there bringing up the rear, actually, uh, at 1.46. Maybe Apple doesn't feel quite as threatened by what going on in Washington is the rest of the big guys. And we have a debutante here. Uh, take a look at this one. It's Robinhood, uh, which is registered as a lo- uh, registered lobbyist for the first time. They registered on February 8th. Their first quarter lobbying spent a modest $460,000. You can see some of the issues there that they're focused on, a number of bills that have been proposed, which, which they're going to be following along through the process. They're also talking about following market infrastructure, volatility, and real-time settlement issues uh, here in Washington, D.C. But if you look at that number for Amazon at $4.8 million, that is a big spending number, but it's not nearly enough to put them to the top of the list overall. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce spent more than $17 million in the same period of time. So that gives you a little context here. The individual companies not really competing with the big lobbies in Washington. Still, the tech guys are up, and it does give you a sense that they're staffing up for a fight here in Washington, D.C. this year, Brian. Eamon, they're on pace for $20 million a year. What do they want? What do they want? Well, look, I mean, the big thing for, for Amazon is, I mean, Amazon is everything, right? I mean, at this point, we, what we saw over the pandemic is Amazon takes over the entire retail industry, basically. So they're into just about everything. So there's not an issue out there that Amazon's not going to have a view on, by and large. Uh, a lot of it's going to be around tax. That tends to be one of the big ones. And then when you look at Facebook, Alphabet, uh, and maybe even Microsoft, what you're talking about there is regulations around uh, this question of liability on the internet, right? So are there uh, are the internet uh, service companies, uh, the social media companies in particular, responsible for the content that they put up uh, through all of our, us users out there who are putting stuff on their sites? Is that a liability issue for those companies? The law says no and has said no for 20 years. There's a movement afoot to change that. We'll see if they can push yeah. that back. But there are some conservatives and liberals gravitating to that idea, and the, the big social media companies don't like it. 
Yeah, that law was written when we were dialing up to our AOL account through a 2400 baud modem, you know, and airlines were propeller right. planes. 20 million a year for those. Amazon and others on pace. Yeah, and, and let's not forget, folks, lobbyists are the ones that generally actually write the bills that Congress then, the Congress people aren't writing the bills. It tends to be the lobbyists yep. and other firms Often that they ch- tweak them. Eamon Javers, amazing numbers, man. Thank you. Wow. Stay on that story. Yep. Holy It'll be a big year. All right, coming up, we talk a lot about the rollout of COVID vaccines on this program. Why not? It's a story of a lifetime. But the real story also could be on the treatment side. And top biotech analyst Jeff Porges will join us next. But first, as we head to break, quickly, some of your other top stories this Thursday. Chipotle, wow, blasting through earnings, online sales, topping in-person orders for the first time ever. It's important because digital pickup orders are more profitable than in-person orders. Marvell Technology officially completing its $10 billion purchase of semiconductor company Infi. Marvel CEO joining Mad Money last night telling Jim the tie-up will spark growth in the key end markets of 5G cloud and automotive. Jeopardy, I, I got to say, I'm jealous of this story, okay? Jeopardy announcing its final slate of guest hosts. And David Faber, our friend and colleague, has been added to the lineup. That's right, David is going to be hosting, I guess, a week of Jeopardy. Don't get jealous of I am spectacularly envious of David on this. Congrats. By the way, David, a former, look at him, former Jeopardy champion. You go, David Faber. We'll see you on on Jeopardy, the man who never ages. We're back after this. All right, welcome back. It, it's really now a tale of two pandemics this morning. In the United States, roughly 88 million of us, about 26% of the population, are now fully vaccinated. And as of yesterday, the CDC reports that 40% of the total population, not just adults, everybody has received at least one dose. It's more than 134 million people. But something to consider is that demand for the vaccine appears to be dropping off in many parts of the country. Yeah, we still got some big daily numbers, averaging about 3 million shots a day, but the pace is slowing down a bit. Some areas saying they've got more doses than arms to put them into. In the meantime, on the other side of the world, Japan could impose a third state of emergency on Tokyo and India reporting a global record of more than 314,000 new cases in just the past 24 hours. But here is something crucial to remember. This is not a year ago. We know a lot more now, and it's not just the vaccines. Treatments have gotten a lot better. And your next guest says we're likely entering what he calls a phase of trench warfare against the virus. Jeff Porges is Director of Therapeutics Research, Senior Biotech Analyst at SVB Lyric, and joins us now, Jeff, on an important story. What do you mean by that? Trench warfare time. Good morning, Brian. Yeah, look, this is going to really be the hard yards over the next three to six months because you can see, as you pointed out, um, the vaccine adoption is slowing. You know, we're at, at that um, sort of 40, probably 40% adoption. We really need to be getting to 60 to 70% in this country. And more importantly, to really open up, we need the rest of the world to be uh, successful in their vaccination rollouts. And as we know, um, that's been very, uh, very spotty around the world. So, First of all, the vaccine adoption needs to be consistent and higher, and that's probably going to take months and may even take us into next year. Uh, The good news, as you point out, is that treatments have gotten a lot better. Um, As the pressure has come off our hospital system, as more and more research has been completed, we know how to use antivirals like remdesivir, antibodies. We know even know how to use some of the anti-inflammatories. So 
Um, the outlook for people being hospitalized with COVID is certainly better. Um, you know, we're not perfect. We're still having, unfortunately and tragically, seven or 800 people or six or 700 people dying each day, which is still an unacceptably um, tragic uh, outcome from the pandemic. It is. But but because of these treatments, Jeff, it could be worse, could it not? And I understand. Listen, we I think me being on the road with the vaccines, this show has probably given more optimism and hope around the vaccines than many others across any network. That aside, we probably failed on the treatment side. So I wanted to have you on. I mean, Regeneron's got these treatments. You got Roche. They've got these treatments, but yet they're not getting hardly any attention, at least on the media side. Are they getting investor attention? And which ones do you think are, are the best right now? Yes. Look, the interesting thing is, so we deal with a lot of early companies and, and I can tell you for sure there are lots of there's a lot of capital going to early companies that are advancing very promising treatments that are even better than those that are available now and those that are available now are pretty good the problem as you pointed out is they're just not being used now remdesivir gilead's antiviral is probably being used in 50 or 60 percent of people who are hospitalized in this country but use of remdesivir is pretty modest outside the u.s um, and that needs to go up but the antibodies there's a catch-22 with the antibodies, which is they're sitting in hospitals, but their indication is for pre-hospitalized patients. And so if someone shows up and says they want the antibody, the hospital says, well, you're not sick enough to admit, so we can't give you the antibody. And so they just go around and around, and as a result, very little adoption. But some of those early-stage companies, they're bringing forth antibodies that can be given in the doctor's office, can be given in the walk-in med clinic, and actually can be given with lower doses. So that will make a big difference. And they're just over the horizon. But even the current antibodies need to be used much, much more broadly, uh, both pre-exposure and post-exposure when people first become symptomatic. Yeah, and, and listen, no one's saying COVID's just going to you know, vanish over time. We get 60% vaccination. We still have 40% that are not vaccinated. To your point, variants, the vaccines aren't 100%. We're going to have other cases, even for people that are vaccinated. The math tells us that. So do you expect the treatments and the Gileads and the Regenerons to finally get more attention over the next few years? Yes, look, I think that, it, well, as you point out, COVID is going to be here for a long time. This is a new pathogen that's coming to the human host. Uh, it's not going away, going away. It's not going to miraculously disappear. Mm -hmm. We're going to be able to contain it at a fairly low level, but just in the same way that we as a species, we live with influenza, uh, we live with other coronaviruses, we're going to live with this. So we have to figure out how to deal with it. One way is to have treatments in our toolbox. Those need to be in physicians' offices, in drugstores, uh, available if someone gets a, a referral or a prescription, they need to be in hospitals. So treat, treatments are going to need to be distributed and there'll need to be a lot of them. Of course, we need to continue yeah. to improve our vaccines as well and have treatments for early stage as well as late stage disease. Well said, Jeff Porges, SVB Larynx there with the treatment side of the story, an important one, Gilead, Regeneron and others. Jeff, thank you very much. Appreciate it. We'll see you soon. See you soon, All right, man. one more break, folks. We're back with your morning RBI, and it's on everybody's favorite topic, taxes. That's right. But it's a tax RBI you're going to want to hear. It's kind of sort of good news, sort of. Back up to this. Well, this morning's most random but interesting thing has to do with everybody's least favorite topic, and that is taxes. All right, don't turn the channel. You might actually like this tax talk because... 
with so much talk about big spending programs, stimulus, infrastructure, everything else, there's a lot of talk about raising taxes on companies and wealthier people to pay for it. Now, you CNBC viewer may not like that, but you might like this, hopefully fairly simple solution. Why doesn't the IRS just collect the taxes it is legally owed? It sounds like a basic concept, but it actually hasn't been. In fact, this is going to blow your mind. It's certainly blown mine when I read it. According to the IRS's own data and the Wall Street Journal, which is how I found the story, about $380 billion in owed taxes is not collected every single year. Now, they're going back a few years of the data, but it's probably about the same now. Think about that. Nearly $400 billion a year. And people either, I don't know, screwing up their taxes, not paying enough, or simply scamming the government and their fellow taxpayer. Put another way, that's about a trillion dollars every three years. One reason so many are able to skirt their taxes, the IRS has been losing people four years. Its budget has been slashed. And you may think, good, I don't want to get audited. Well, think about it a different way. Think about the cheats or avoiders. $380 billion a year for context, that's three times the amount of money that we just put in the recent stimulus plan that will go to schools over the next seven years or enough to pay off every dime of student loan debt in about just four to five years. Think about that, just collecting the money that is owed. Tax cheats, random but expensive and hopefully interesting. All right, back down to the broader markets. Emily Bowersock Hill is the founding partner of Bowersock Capital and Sanctuary Wealth. And she joins us now. We'll not ask you, Emily, to, to con, you know, comment on that tax number. It's a, it's a big number. You deal in other big numbers. And that is your clients as one of the top wealth advisors in the United States. Markets are getting a little frothy here. Kind of seems like I figured out which way to go. What are you recommending to your clients right now, Emily? Well, this time of year, we generally recommend rebalancing portfolios, and especially this year. I do think that there's a bubble building in certain parts of the U.S. markets, and that doesn't mean that it won't continue, but it's a good time to take profits. Well, where, where's the bubble? Well, I think it's, you know, it's mostly in U.S. large cap growth, consumer discretionary, any innovation related stocks, uh, and those have just have run up quite substantially in price. Yeah, it sounds like you're, you're naming without naming a lot of big cap technology companies. So let's say our viewers, your clients, they've owned them for years. They've made a lot of money. Where do they put those profits? Where is there still some value? We see value in commodities, in REITs, uh, certainly in international developed markets. You know, I think one of the things that has happened recently is that the volumes of retail trading have increased very significantly. So it's doubled really since 2019. And so about a quarter of, of trading volumes are retail traders. And, you know, they're buying the exciting, interesting, uh, you know, AI related innovation stocks. And so the place to look are the parts of the market, obviously, that haven't appreciated as much. Developed international markets uh, would be an example. I like it. International markets finally getting some love. By the way, I think the France market and UK market, they're some of the top performing over the last few months. Emily Bowersock Hill, we appreciate getting up early. Thanks for joining us on Worldwide Exchange. We'll see you again. Take care. Thank you.
All right, and that does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Another one down, another one bites the dust. We'll see you tomorrow morning at the same time, same channel. Have a great day. Squawk Box is next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.